Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Ed Surge On Air podcast. I'm your host, Jenny Abamu. Now, normally I trade off leading interviews with my colleague, Jeff Young. But as you know, we like to switch things up on you guys. So this week, our famed editor, Tony Wong, will be leading an interview. I normally call him the Barry White of Ed Surge since his voice is so low. But in this podcast, he actually sounds a bit different. We'll see what you guys think. Now, normally I'm not exactly fangirling over Silicon Valley guys who make a lot of money in business and turn their attention to quote-unquote fixing education, but our guest, Ted Dintersmith, has an interesting story to tell after visiting multiple schools in all 50 states, and he is now putting together a book about his experiences so other people can learn from what he's done. Stay tuned to the interview from Ed Surge's own Tony Wan. everyone. I'm here with Ted Dintersmith. Today, those of us in the education circles may know him from the 2015 book and documentary, Most Likely to Succeed, which profiled innovative work in schools across the country. But he's not done yet. And today he joins us to talk about his forthcoming work, along with some reflections from his recent travels and observations around the role of technology and the business mindset in education. Thanks, Ted, for taking the time to join us today. No, I'm happy to be here. Uh, from one of our previous conversations, you said it yourself. You describe yourself as a well-off business guy getting involved in education. Now, Ted, sorry to break to you, um, but I don't think you're the first well-off business guy with thoughts around how to change and improve the state of education. So what makes you and your approach any different? Well, I always, when I'm meeting an educator, I always start by apologizing because I know when they hear that somebody spent their career in business and now is interested in education, you can see the blood drain from their face. Um, so I do apologize and I'm humble about the fact that I've not been a classroom teacher. Um, what I think is different is I think I work really hard to understand what's going on in schools. Um, I've traveled all over the country. I went to all 50 states in the school year 2015 and 16, visited a couple hundred schools. And so I'm, instead of pronouncing what schools should do, I'm really trying to understand what schools are doing today that's really working and helping us amplify that so that people get energized and inspired by the kinds of progress we can make. Yeah. So in your forthcoming book, uh, What Schools Could Be, you offered some pretty interesting stats. You've got 245 nights in hotel rooms. Uh, 68 TSA pat-downs, uh, pretty, pretty interesting thing to share. Uh, give us a glimpse or, over, or an overview of the extent of your, of your travels across the country. Well, the, the reason I mentioned the TSA pat-downs, which is probably from left field for people, but I have an artificial left, left hip. Uh, so whenever I go through, it is not just a slight pat-down. It's like, I know these TSA officials pretty well at this point. Um, you know, so, I mean, what really drove it was um, I just felt the urgency of, of two things. One, communicating broadly the fact that we don't have infinite amounts of time with this. You know, the, the, while I'm humble about being, you know, limited in my classroom teaching experience, I mean, I've gone in and given a few, run a few classes from here time to time, which is very different. So, so I'm not the expert there. I feel like I am the expert when it comes to innovation. I, I lived and breathed that. I've worked with the top entrepreneurs. 
And people have a very hard time understanding just how fast the changes are happening and what it will mean when we live in a world where every routine job is gone. And that's not the stuff of science fiction. That's not 20, 30, 40 years out. I think in 10 years, there will be essentially no jobs left in the economy that don't require some special something by the employee hoping to fill that role. Yeah, in your book, there is there seems to be this looming threat, and you're not the first to share about the uh, you know what's coming on the horizon around machine intelligence and automation, and in some ways that uh, from your book informs the kinds of skills that kids are going to need or or not need in the future. Can you share a little bit more about your thoughts around what the future of these skills are going to will, will need to be? Well, as a given, just take it as a go to the bank. This is a fact that if it's pattern recognition, if it's following instructions, if it's something you can write a tight job description around, it's probably going to be done by machine intelligence. And so that begs for a really interesting look into how do you prepare kids for a world where if all you're good at is memorizing content, replicating low level procedures, and following instructions, you will not be getting, you know, a job. You will not be finding your way forward. And I think, you know, sort of building off of your question a little while earlier is that I think a lot of the people my age naturally gravitate toward a vision of school as it was when they went to school. You know, I think there's just this sort of mantra that the key to success in in U.S. education is better test scores and more kids off to four-year college. Never really stepping back and saying, what's in the curriculum? How aligned is it with what kids need to understand and be able to do today? And what does this process of school where we, to a very large extent, shape the values and the competencies of our kids, what is that process doing to help them in a world that's dynamic and innovative? And what's it doing to potentially impair them? And I think when you look at it in that light, you realize that far more kids are being set back when they're in a conventional school than are being really uplifted. Now, here's a thing that I think sometimes um, can ruffle some feathers. Uh, if you listen to many education entrepreneurs and uh, most recently our education secretary, there's this uh, assumption that classrooms aren't changing. And the best way to visualize that is that PowerPoint slide that juxtaposes a picture, a grainy picture of the classroom from the 1800s to a classroom, to, uh, classroom from today and argue that nothing's changing. But is that what you've seen in your travels? What if, t- tell us a little bit more about what, what, what you've seen, some of the, uh, you know, what do classrooms look like today? I think that's a convenient image to put in front of people, but as, as the saying goes, looks can be deceiving. So I visit a lot of schools, you know, particularly very expensive elite private schools that have the oak tables with a small number of students sitting around the oak table and the teacher there And on the surface, you'd say, whoa, this is really where education needs to head. But it isn't, because when you really observe those classes, it's the teacher dominating the discussion, asking questions to a very large extent require fact-based answers. And with most of the kids, if you could get inside their mind, they're playing what's on, you know, the game of what's on the teacher's mind. Just as you go to schools that say, oh, we are embracing technology. Every kid has an iPad. We are a one-to-one school. And then you look at what they're doing on the iPad, and they're essentially doing something very similar to or exactly like 
memorizing electronic flashcards instead of paper flashcards. And so Surface doesn't tell you the depth of what's going on. And I find when you really do this combination of observing the dynamic in the classroom, but also interviewing the students and getting their sense of what they're doing and why they're doing it, you learn a lot about what really is working and is preparing kids for a dynamic future and what is just more of the same. Give me, give me, uh, give us an example of what was the most unlikely uh, source of uh, innovation or, inspira- or inspiration across your travels. Is there one case study or school that just comes to the top of your mind? Well, the, the book intentionally highlights something from every state. And the point I really want to make is it's not one model that we need to pay attention to. It's not one approach that everybody should look up to, admire, and try to emulate. It's really showing that all across the country, you can find, if you work at it, which I did, you can find these innovative teachers doing the most amazing things with their students, each looking different, you know, Some are tech-driven, some are liberal arts-driven, some are, you know, who knows what. There really is no pattern when you look just at the activity in the classroom. But when you go one step below that, when you really look at what's going on, these kids are working on challenges they think are important, and they're developing essential skill sets and mindsets, and they're being trusted to manage their own learning. And when you ask them about things They don't give you some superficial response. They really understand it because they've had to apply it or they've had to teach other kids what they've learned. And when you look at that, that, those kids, they won't sprint through as much content as kids in a normal school will. But I think the evidence is pretty clear that most kids aren't retaining what they're learning, whether they get fives on AP or ones on an AP exam, or whether they get all A's or whether they get a checkered transcript. More, more times than not, and it's heartbreaking, when you ask a kid about what they learned a month ago or two months ago, it's very hazy. Because if you just study it, if you cram for an exam, if you maybe power up with some Adderall, you might get a great exam score. But that is not the same as having really mastered it. And how are you seeing um, these kids uh, master Uh, these skills? How are they given opportunities to apply and master these skills? Are we talking about things like project-based learning, uh, you know, different kinds of instructional pedagogies? What are you seeing on that front where kids are developing, actually uh, developing, developing and retaining knowledge and skills? How does that happen? Yeah. And I think that the two most authentic forms of assessment boil down to, can you teach somebody else what you've learned? And, and over and over again, whether you're a teacher or not, you know, people tell me it accords with every bit of my experience. You never learn anything as well as when you have to teach somebody else the same topic. So teaching others, and then can you actually apply it? Can you use it? Can you create something with it? And so when you look at those, those are both things that drive students to really master what they're studying. They are very directly observable. So it's not as though you're letting kids off the hook when it comes to accountability. You really do hold them to a very high standard of accountability. What is impossible, right, is you can't rank order a kid in San Francisco against a kid in Tulsa, or you can't compare somebody for, you know, their ability to apply 
a math principle when they're building a house, you know, you, you can inform, you know, inform people can assess it. They can provide direct feedback. When you see it and touch it and feel it, you know whether it's good, bad, or indifferent. But it doesn't map into a 721 versus a 640 versus a 425. And to me, it begs the question of, should our kids be studying what's important to learn or should they be studying what's easy to test? And I think way too often in our schools, we are pushing the school, the teachers, and the students to study what's easy to test, not what's important to learn. On a side note, um, around some of these emerging skills that people think that kids are going to need in the future, we've seen a concerted push from a cross-sector of uh, private companies and public institutions to promote computer science and coding. Now, in your book, you say that uh, it's become trendy to assert that that's become a basic skill that everyone needs to master, but you call that, and I quote, an inane statement. Why do you think that? Um, isn't computer science and coding, aren't they all tied to the jobs of the future? The, the, and I want to be very clear. What I believe is inane is when somebody says knowing how to code is a basic skill. It's a 21st century version of reading and writing and arithmetic. And you can find people that say that, including, including, and I hate to say this because I love the man, our former president, Barack Obama. Coding is a basic skill that every kid needs to master. I believe that is a name. And I also believe that the coding jobs are not the explosive growth industry going forward. I, I think that a lot of the coding will be handled by artificial intelligence. I go back to you know, 10, 15 years ago when people would say the same thing. Everybody needs to know how to code in HTML because websites are going to be everywhere. Well, they were right about the websites, but they couldn't have been more wrong about HTML. You know, because a handful of people bring us Squarespace and Weebly so the rest of us can use their code to do something creative and useful and valuable. And so if you look at the number of jobs that will be created by coding skills, that, I think, will be dwarfed by the number of jobs created by people who are really adept and proficient at using these technology-based tools. Mm. And so a small number of people will work on the code for salesforce.com, but there are 10, 50, 100 jobs for every one of those for people who know how to use it to help businesses get better results. And so to me, it's not computer science. It's computer literacy. It's understanding and making yourself far more productive with the base of tools and resources that are out there. And I think that's what we need to teach. And that's what we need to encourage kids to learn and to be confident that they can figure stuff out and use it to make whatever they're trying to accomplish have bigger impact. Whether you're a philosophy professor that then shares your insights in a blog that people follow or a journalist, you know, your sweet spot, or a scientist or engineer, those kinds of technology-based tools can really amplify the impact of your work. And, and that, to me, is what we need to get at. And I, I just feel like when a school has a very traditional curriculum, but then puts up the big celebration flag because we now offer AP Computer Science, that's not the way forward. Uh, just sticking with the technology aspect a little bit, uh, in your book, you talk a little bit about your visit to California, and uh, it seems like you found that the Silicon, some of the Silicon Valley technologists that you've spoke to, you found have rather uninformed views about the role of technology in education versus others you've talked to. Can you tell a little bit more? Tell us a little bit more about 
Um, what do you mean by that? Well, when I was in California, my book, I really highlight uh, this guy. I'm a huge fan of him, Daryl Adams. And he, at the time, was superintendent of the second poorest district in the country, Coachella, which is, you know, 20, 20 miles from Palm Springs, so 20 miles from affluence. But it is the poorest of poor. I mean, these are kids desperately trying to escape poverty. And what really inspired me about Daryl is he has really embraced the use of technology in their school, but his vision of how technology can be really helpful for these kids is that they can be that much more productive in creating and developing and implementing projects and you know, really trying to figure out how you can leverage yourself and your emerging talents and skills to make a better life for yourself. And just as a whole set of bold and interesting things. And then you contrast that with the number of people who think that if we can let kids move faster, you know, kind of move at their own pace more quickly through math that honestly very few adults ever use, that that's a major rethink and an enormous contribution to education progress. I'm skeptical of that. You know, we never seem to get around to in our math classes how are, you, how are you ever going to use this to make your life more productive, to make your world better? That is like the footnote that never gets covered. And, and so I talk to these kids who have, are taking or have taken AP Calculus BC. And I'll ask them, so how would you use calculus in your life going forward? No idea. And, and for good reason. Very, very few people in America use the ideas of calculus and nobody does integrals and derivatives by hand anymore. And so to me, it just sort of those things amplify whether you're thinking deeply about education or whether you have a more superficial view. Because I think if you think deeply, you're going to say, what skills and proficiencies can our students develop that really do open up doors for them going forward? Doors way beyond slightly improving their prospects to get into a certain college. And I think if you think superficially, and I don't it's not a lot of these people's full-time job. We all want school to kind of be the way it was when we went there. You know, it's just like, it's just like not intentional. It's not that, that there's a, a concerted effort to say we want to jeopardize the future of our children. But I think when you just say jump through hoops faster on a more personalized basis without ever stopping to say, are these hoops useful? I mean, are these just hoops we've inherited from 1893? Or do they, these hoops really matter in the lives of these kids and in their ability to create a great future for themselves? That, to me, is the, the question we need to ask. And I think when we just declare we're making major contributions by you know, taking what I think is a largely obsolete curriculum that's both, mostly fact-based, formula-based, definition-based, and say, let's you know, bring levels of improvement to that for the families that can afford laptops. Mm -hmm. I don't know. You know, like I, I, we can shoot higher. We can do more. Uh, I want you to put on back your venture capital hat. It's a hat you may have retired several years ago, but I want to bring, uh, <laughs> have you wore that hat just for a little bit. Uh, in recent years, there's been a notice, noticeable uptick in the amount of private um, money uh, from the venture world going into education services and technologies. But the question I have is, you know, from from having seen both sides, um, from having seen the venture world and now having traveled to all 50 states, 
do you think that the problems in education are venture capital types of problems and, and, and opportunities? Are these questions the, the kinds of questions that you think venture capital or any capital is well served to address? Yeah. Well, I don't, you know, that's such a great question. Um, do I think the fact that a lot of people are thinking about education and willing to write checks to support things is a bad thing? Absolutely not. I think it's a good thing. Do I think the real issue is more going at how do we produce young kids? I mean, I would say it, it really should be school leading to entrepreneurial adults instead of entrepreneurial adults funding obsolete school, if that makes sense. And so to me, and, and I have this discussion everywhere I go, if you, you pick, a, pick a part of the Midwest that just really has been hard hit by a loss of jobs, it's very difficult to jumpstart an entrepreneurial economy there if most of the young kids have been through a 12, 16-year education that to a very large extent has crushed out of them their creativity, their inventiveness, their audacity. You know, if you just put kids through hoop jumping for 12, 16 years, they get that. They become hoop jumpers. And are there places in the economy that still want to hire hoop jumpers, particularly ones that are motivated, competitive, results-oriented hoop jumpers? Sure, there are places in the economy that, that still want to hire those. Those jobs, though, are going down. And so to me, the opportunity, and which is why I think it's hard with a vision of education that I find compelling, it's hard for that to map into great big venture capital opportunities because what I write about, what I observed is no two are alike. They're all doing different, really interesting things that often don't cost that much, often cost nothing, but they are helping each kid in a different, very specific way discover their strengths learn more about their interests and begin to gain the skills and confidence that they can use their life to make their world better. That's what I look for in schools. That's what I feel is the most important thing education can do for our kids. And if they are all quite different, it's, it, it, I think it begs more for an innovation model in our schools than it begs for some massively funded company doing the same thing for everybody. You know, because if, if, Lots and lots of kids come out of schools with the exact same skill set. You know, where's that lead, right? I mean, if you told me we're going to generate, yeah, back to the coding question, if half of kids came out of K through 12 or K through 16 education being good to really good coders, what happens to that whole sector? Oh, I don't know. I mean, maybe there's some expansion, but my bet is that uh, a lot of people are going to be unemployed coders, just as a lot of people coming out of top law schools are having trouble finding jobs. But if you really take a, the antithesis of standardized, if you look at schools that help kids demonstrate they can get great results in different ways with different directions, you know, if you're, if you're not to use a, a hackneyed phrase, but a thousand flowers blooming instead of a factory producing dandelions, you know, then it's a much harder market to go after for a venture capital initiative. But, you know, now I'm funding some things. I mean, I think some people are doing some great things that are really interesting alternatives to traditional education, particularly going at kind of the higher ed area where, you know, colleges are very slow to change and more and more kids, you know, it's interesting, you know, like when I went to college, very few people went to college with the express goal of getting a job. You know, today it's like 95% of students who go to college, that's, you know, essentially their top requirement. I'm going to college to get a job. 
except that it's not happening that often. You know, it's, it's like of the kids that start down the path of four-year colleges, about half graduate in six years or less. Of the half that graduate, only half of those get the kind of jobs we think of in, when we use the word college degree. So you start down the four-year college path, it's one chance in four that it leads to the outcome that I think many of us, particularly my age, think is kind of the surefire thing when you go to college. And of those that leave, no matter what kind of job they get, whether they complete or drop out, 70% are leaving with substantial amounts of student loan debt. So that traditional, just better test scores, higher graduation rates, more kids into four-year college sounds so good, but I actually think it's doing more harm than good. And I feel that if we told our K-12 through schools, your only mission in life isn't just college-ready kids. Rethink your curriculum, grade seven through 12, and think about what's really going to prepare kids for life instead of for a college application. We would see some really exciting things going on with our youth. What do you think most investors and education funders get wrong about education? What assumptions do they hold? Well, I I do think that most people, if you just wake them up in the middle of the night and say, what do we need to do in education, would say exactly what I said before, you know, better test scores, more graduation rates, more kids into four-year college. So for all sorts of reasons, I think that, you know, the people that follow that path, my vintage, I mean, I graduated from high school in 1970, that was a great path, you know, but when you got out of college, there were lots of entry-level jobs and the economy was full of jobs that just required hoop jumping of some sort. You know, it was just wide open spaces if you were a motivated, energetic hoop jumper. And, and I feel like that universe is, it's not gone, but it's, it's shrinking. Um, and so I feel like you have to start there. It's the, I love the Andy Grove saying, you know, if you don't know where you're going, any road will get you there. And so, you know, look at how much money, the enormous amounts of money and effort and energy have gone into charter schools. and and. My film, Most Likely to Succeed, profiles a great charter school, High Tech High, in San Diego. So, so believe me, I have a huge amount of respect for some of the schools that got started under charters that really did deep innovation, that had the space and support to prove things out that help us understand what can be done going forward. Boom. That said, that said, you know, it's a pick in the poke when it comes to charter schools today. I mean, some are fraudulent. Let's say that's a a portion, but not a big portion. But many of them are test prep factories. Many of them just say, boom, we will succeed because we get kids to do better on their test scores. We get more kids to graduate. And isn't it great? All of our kids have to get a college acceptance letter as as a graduation requirement. Aren't we doing them enormous favor? I go to those schools. I go to those schools. And the hallways are full of pennants and posters that basically say to these kids, your success is equivalent to your college placement. If you don't go to college, you're not a first-class citizen in America. What pr- troubles me about that, and I think that, that, that any kid, whether they're from a well-off family or poor family, whatever the socioeconomic circumstances and geographies, I think if we did K-12 right, a lot more of those kids would view college as, as optional instead of mandatory for pursuing a fulfilling career. And people gasp at that. They say, oh my gosh, how could you say that? You know, like college is all about discovering yourself and building a soul and everything else. And I would say, look, before you challenge me on this, read Academically Adrift. 
It's a book by Richard Aram and Josipa Roxa. I say, until you've read that book, I don't want to have a discussion with you about college because they're the only, as far as I can tell, the only group that's developed and looked at longitudinal data about how much kids are actually learning over the course of their college experience. And, and this myth we have that these kids are going to college and immersing themselves in the most stimulating seminars and being turned on to Hegel and discovering the beautiful aspects of math around, you know, linear algebra, topology. I mean, all these things we think are happening with every kid, you know, cranking through college. We can't tell every kid you're not a success. You're not a first class citizen in our country unless you have a college diploma. And by the way, the more elite the college, the better, uh, you know, the higher the class you are in our society. You know, it just is not doing justice to the kids that have these remarkable skills and strengths that don't align with traditional school. What's been one unifying thread or theme that has resonated across all of your visits? As I really stepped back and said, what is going on? I, I noted these four things. You know, I, I use the acronym PEAK, but purpose, essential skills and mindsets, agency and knowledge. And in the places I went where kids were on fire, where they couldn't wait to get to school, where they had great answers to the questions I asked, where they were not one was looking even remotely bored, where the teacher was sort of stepping back and letting the kids run with their learning. You know, you ask the kid why you're doing it, they've got a great reason. The reason is not because this is what my assignment is or because I've, this is the homework I was given or I got to do this to get an A. They're like, I'm curious about this or we're trying to create this or our project is all about this. You know, you, know, you look at the essentials, they're getting good at creative problem solving, a communication, a collaboration, a critical thinking, all the things that we all agree kids need to do and be good at. And there's very little kind of memorization you know, content regurgitation, you know, factual-based recall. So the stuff they're getting good at matters. You know, the agency, these kids in these schools, these places are serious. It's not just let a kid be on this, you know, uh, as an advisor to the principal in that student agency. I mean, they really do transfer the responsibility for the learning onto the student and mean it. And some students don't do do well with that initially. Some may not even get there. And those are the ones that are the remedial students that need the real help. But once students realize, hey, you have a big say in what you're doing and it's your responsibility, I'll tell you, based on 50 states and a lot of places, they rise to that challenge. And the final thing is they, they're not just memorizing and forgetting. You know, I could ask them about what they worked on a month ago, two months ago, three months ago, what they've really learned and can you teach me something about it? Great answers. You know, it's not transient cramming for an exam. It's, it's really true mastery. And, and I think it begs the point, you know, like, so what if you cover massive swaths of college ready content, but you know, you can't light up a light bulb with a wire and a battery, or you don't, uh, this, I point people to this YouTube video with a journalist at Texas tech who asked kids who won the civil war and student after student doesn't know who won the civil war. So big deal. If we covered it in history class, Big deal if they got questions right on the, on the exam about what year started and had finished. If when they're 21, they don't remember who won the Civil War, did we really accomplish all that much? How do you find that teachers are, uh, the teachers you've met, are they supported, developed, encouraged, empowered in some ways to perhaps teach in a different way than they were taught? What, is the level, what have you seen about the teacher's support? 
in these schools? First, I'm just the hugest fan of teachers. You know, they are dedicated, they are caring, they are passionate. Many were just remarkably emotional about their day and, and the, the tension they feel between doing what they know is best for their kids and doing what, you know, the conditions we impose on them say they should do. A common denominator, the places I write about, the places I celebrate, the places I believe people need to hear about and pay attention to, a common denominator. These teachers, or if it's a school-wide transformation, these principals would all, in one way, shape, or form, say somebody had their back. The teacher wants to do something really out of the box. The principal says, there'll be detractors, but I've got your back. Principal wants to change their school. Their superintendent would say, parents may complain, school board may be worried, whatever, I've got your back. And so I came away feeling like there's a lot of pent-up innovation in the teaching force that if we supported them and encouraged them, certainly not every teacher, absolutely not every teacher will jump at that chance, but some will. And if the some that do don't get wailed on or don't get criticized or don't get second guessed, but we actually highlight what they've accomplished, what they've learned, look objectively at the setbacks and not view those as a criticism of the, of the teacher, but as a, an opportunity to learn, that's how change happens. A few sprint, Others watch and say, I'll at least jog. And some are just going to always stay at the starting line. And so be it. You know, like if a teacher is just absolutely committed to a lecturing model with recall-based exams, you know, some of those actually have positive impacts on their kids. You know, you can approach kids with different learning approaches, different teaching approaches. And I don't think kids experiencing a diversity of approaches is a bad thing. But I'd sure rather have the teachers itching to innovate running the teacher is open to interview jogging and watch things evolve over time because my bet is, and we see it in two, three, four years, that's just a totally different school. Thank you for listening to the Ed Surge On Air podcast. That was our editor, Tony Wan and Tim Dintersmith. This episode was produced and edited by Tony, and you can give us a grade on the quality of this podcast by rating us on iTunes or sending an email to us at feedback at edsurge.com. You can also subscribe to us on your iPhone podcast app, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back next week with more on the future of education.